Hi, and welcome back to the Pork Rolls Almanac. I'm your host, Andy, and today we have a special guest, Dr. John Kifus, joining us all the way from France to discuss lessons learned over a half decade of beekeeping. We chat about treatment-free beekeeping, bond testing, soft bond testing, and really the role beekeepers play not as managers, but as collaborators in honeybee survival. John's dedicated the past 30 years to treatment-free beekeeping, and we talk extensively about mite management. John has stewarded honeybees across the globe and has some really interesting insights about the future of beekeeping. I think you will all really enjoy this episode. John's extensive background and formative role in beekeeping across the globe cannot be understated. So take a listen, let us know what you think. John, thanks so much for coming on. Please introduce yourself. Okay, my name is uh, John uh, Kifis. Uh, I'm uh, originally from the United States, uh, born in Ypsilanti, Michigan. Lived in Ohio, worked in, uh, in the West, also down in Texas uh, with uh, bees, and then went to uh, Europe uh, to get my PhD under Dr. Rothenbuehler in Oberösel, Germany. And then after that, then uh, moved on to uh, southern France to start uh, Ruhr uh, Queens. And so that's what I've been doing. Awesome. And you were in South America for a little while, right? Yeah, I have uh, the Operation Pacific Queens in uh, South America. And uh, normally my uh, partner is going to finish buying me out uh, next year. So that means that I still own part of it. But uh, we uh, specialize in the uh, pollination of avocados. My part on it was rearing of queens and pollen uh, production. Uh, we did some genetic selection on bees for pollen production and because we shipped frozen uh, pollen to Europe for bumblebee production. Oh, awesome. Sometimes, some years we'd ship out about nine tons of pollen. Oh, wow. So I, I'm not super familiar with bumblebees being fed. Are people breeding bumblebees and what for exactly? Yes, uh, people do breed uh, bumblebees for pollination in uh, greenhouses. Oh, okay. That makes sense. And uh, it's good because you can buy them in boxes and put the boxes in your greenhouse and then uh, you can uh, they'll pollinate for you. That's awesome. Yeah. And you don't you don't need that many bumblebees for pollination, but uh, they're very efficient. Yeah, they their colonies are only a, what a couple hundred bees usually. Something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. The reason I wanted to have you on is you've got this really diverse history that you've uh, a lot of different places you've worked, a lot of things you've seen, and you've been around beekeeping for decades. Well, I'd say a little bit more than decades because about I fifty started, years. I started keeping bees when I was uh, eleven years old, and uh, now I'm just a young seventy-nine. Oh wow! <laughs> so that gives you an idea of uh, how long I've been keeping bees. I got into keeping bees because I like to eat honey, and I, when I was young, I didn't have the money to buy uh, honey, and so I thought, well, if I had some bees, I could have all the honey to eat, which uh, turned out to be true. <laughs> So. And you're not sick of it yet? No, no, no. I like to eat uh, honey. And, uh, so you've seen a lot change in the beekeeping industry. Mm-hmm. All right. So the first thing I want to ask is you've been treatment-free with your bees since 1998. Yeah. What was it about the 90s that you said, you know what? I, I, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. Well, it's uh, quite simple. 
we helped uh, develop uh, some of the first products for treating uh, varroa mites in the uh, early uh, 90s with the uh, veterinary school here in Toulouse and uh, some other commercial beekeepers. And the problem is when you do a treatment, it's a question of dosage. Low dosages, you don't uh, have much impact, but on a higher dosage, uh, you can. And, uh, and so I realized at the time that uh, we were doing these uh, testing that uh, I really didn't wish to follow the uh, bit about uh, treating the colonies. And uh, then also, in addition, uh, one of the reasons that later on I stopped uh, treating was that uh, I started to get headaches when I treat the colonies. Uh, at that time, we'd have to fumigate the colonies and we'd spray the fumes and vapors inside the colony. And uh, during usually during the winter time and about eight minutes or so for a colony. After those treatments, uh, I had the impression that I had a bad headache, but I thought, well, it was just psychological because I knew I was working with a chemical product. And uh, so I figured, well, maybe it was just my imagination. But then uh, I went to a few bee meetings and uh, uh, bee inspector meetings because I was a bee, a bee inspector at that time. And uh, the other uh, one of the inspectors told me, he said, yeah, I just finished uh, treating my uh, colonies and it's just like somebody hit me in the head with an iron bar. And I said, well, that sounds familiar. And then later on in the meeting, somebody else said, yeah, I treated and had some headaches and things like that. And so then I decided, and then I thought, well, maybe what I thought was a psychological headache uh, was actually a real headache. And so then I decided, well, if I have to change my brain, how much am I going to have to dish out to uh, buy a new brain? Well, yeah, it turns out that at that time, there's nobody selling brains except uh, the Russians. <laughs> this is an old joke. And they used to sell by the kilo. Uh, and a, a doctor's brain would cost a couple hundred copecks. Uh, and an engineer's a uh, few more copecks, but the most expensive brains were beekeepers' brains. That was because you had to get a lot of beekeepers together to get one killer of brains. <laughs> and so, uh, anyhow, I decided, uh, I, since I knew I could not uh, uh, buy a new brain, I thought, well, what are the alternatives? One alternative is to, as a queen breeder, I knew that. If I stopped treating, I was going to lose some colonies. And I figured that if I had a 10% survival rate, at that time I was running 400 colonies in France, a 10% survival rate, uh, I could do a breeding program. And um, after three years, I lost about uh, two-thirds of my colonies. And so I had three times 30% survival. Colonies were not very nice looking and all that. But I was able to start a genetic uh, program. It was had actually more colonies than what I needed for the selection uh, program. And so I started off with that and then just stopped uh, uh, treating and uh, continued on. And the uh, process is quite uh, simple. You eliminate those colonies that have high mite populations and you queen them with queens from colonies that have low mite populations and are good uh, honey producers. One of the mistakes you don't wish to make is to requeen your colonies with colonies that are not good honey producers because as a beekeeper, from my standpoint, you need to have honey also to survive. And so and if, uh, you can always and so you'll take your uh, your best uh, colonies that are have sure the highest mite resistance. 
and select from them. And that way, even if you don't get mite resistance, you still get good honey producing colonies. And so you limit your uh, you limit your your damage. And this is the uh, something that the most beekeepers uh, need to do because uh, nobody can really afford to lose a lot of colonies. So, as a commercial queen breeder, I knew that uh, if I lost all my colonies, I could uh, buy new package bees from Italy and get uh, started into uh, queen rearing very uh, quickly. And uh, but not everyone has that. Uh, that same uh, possibility. Also, earlier when I was studying, did uh, I did my entomology degree at Ohio State in Columbus, Ohio, and there I had the chance to uh, uh, during the summer, my summer vacations, work at the lab of Walter C. Rothenbuehler, who was the one that studied hygienic uh, behavior in bees and found the genetic links to it. And so I know that uh, one of my jobs was counting scales of American fowl. Very interesting, you know. And so I knew that uh, bees could be selected for a disease uh, resistance. For instance, in the case of American fowl brood, we had one line of bees, a brown line, and the Ben Square line that you put in five uh, cells of American fowl brood, and they'd come down and die out. We had another line of bees called the brown line that uh, you'd put in a whole frame of uh, fowl brood, and they'd clean it out, and the following day, they'd be laying there. Oh, wow. What's interesting about the brown line is uh, originally developed from a man that melted down combs of beeswax uh, from other beekeepers. And uh, so whenever he'd uh, need a frames, uh, need a comb for his colonies, he'd go out to his pile of wax frames and pick out something and just put it in his colonies. And so he was actually doing a preliminary selection for American fowl brood uh, resistance. People sometimes do things that... Uh, they're selecting and they they don't know they're doing it, but they're doing it. Yeah. And the main thing is they get uh, results. In this process, are you concerned at all about like a genetic bottleneck at all? No, because uh, we, uh, we're we doing open uh, mating. Uh, so our uh, bees are mating also with uh, our neighbor's uh, bees. And so that's bringing us in some genetic uh, variability. And like I say, we're just trying to select out the the best bees from uh, what we what we have. And uh, I had one uh, beekeeper, Mister Osi. He's dead now, but uh, he treated. He's uh, wasn't too far from me, and he said that uh, with his uh, Amatrat strips, he could get about five or six years uh, use out of his strips, because he said every year he just go and scratch them down to clean off the surface and put them back in the colonies. Sometimes they only use a fourth of a strip. I think what's happening was that uh, his uh, queens were playing around with our drones, and the uh, result was that they were getting resistance into He was getting resistance probably in from our colonies. But what's important for him was that he was happy with his uh, technique for controlling Vera, and uh, he said he didn't have any problems with Vera, and so that's what counted for him. Whether it was that that was... Uh, being effective or not, because normally uh, they say that uh, Amatrat strips, uh, strips, you don't use them for that long and uh, that they fade out. But anyhow, yeah. there's different possibilities that you can have. In yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. And what's good is that um, one of the problems when we're selecting is we need mites. We can't select without mites. And so it's good to have neighbors around and have nice uh, mite uh, populations uh, because that brings us in mites to put might pressure in on our colonies. Uh, 
I just did a, uh, I find it here. We just did some testing of uh, some of my neighbors, uh, counties who, one of the neighbors who treats uh, with uh, mites. And uh, as you, you can't see it, it's too small, but uh, he was running about uh, 13 to 20, 21% uh, mite infestations in on his bees. And uh, at the same time, we we're running about 3.7% mite infestation. We're not that little far from him, and so uh, he's probably our main furnisher of uh, varroa mites. Yeah, you might be the only person I've ever heard talk about needing mites and asking yeah, well, people for mites. Uh, well, you know, I st- a friend of mine, Steve Tabor, lived, used to live by me here and uh, out the farm there. And uh, when he was in the States, he was testing for American fowl brood uh, resistance, and one of his problems was to get enough uh, American fowl brood infestation in the colonies to have them come down with uh, fowl brood. When you're not trying to do it, you seem to get to the diseases quite easily. But when you're trying to study the diseases, and sometimes you find it's pretty difficult to get your colonies infected, or they get infected with something that you don't wish them to get infected with. And so uh, there's two sides. Those that uh, when you're doing selection, uh, you need the mites, and you need that pressure. We also need the honey production to, uh, like I say, select for counties that have high, high honey production and low mite production. And uh, possible to do it. It's just a matter of taking time, and you have to be able to count to five. Yeah. So uh, um, you're referring when you have more than five mites in a county, then it's uh, time to change out that uh, queen. Most of the beekeepers I've met have been able to count to five. Most. And if they haven't been able to count to five, they didn't let me know. And so <laughs> you're referring to this process or this concept of bond testing, right? And that's right, something right. you came up with, right? Yes, yeah, so actually, it was Wolfgang Witcher from Freiburg, uh, Germany, and I that uh, uh, worked together and did some of the original testing on, uh, on, on bees. He had uh, the Germans had a research project in, and uh, I think it was in Tunisia and Sejnan where they were helping farmers and uh, Farmers had cows, goats, and uh, bees. And so when the varroa mites came through, of course, uh, uh, that had a lot of damage uh, on the colonies there. And, uh, and so the col- a lot of the colonies were killed out. But then some colonies survived and were still producing honey. And so their Wolfgang's question was, um, is this genetic or just due to the uh, location effect? And so he sent me some of his uh, queens and... Also, control queens were sent to me from Germany. We tested them out at one of my bee locations, and uh, turned out that uh, the bees from Tunisia was a uh, genetic effect there. But what was also interesting that was that in some of the Kronika lines, also they showed uh, good genetics against uh, mites. And actually, the final survivor in that experiment was uh, Kronika, was the Kronika bees. And so uh, this indicated to me that... Uh, it was a genetic uh, possibility of uh, selecting. And it was for that reason in about 1998, 97, 98, I decided to stop all treatments because couldn't buy a new brain. And even if I could buy a new brain, I'm not sure I'd have the money to pay for one that I need. (laughs) (laughs) This concept of bond testing, could you exactly describe for folks that have never heard the term, like what it exactly is? Well, it uh, goes to the slogan of bond, uh, live and let die. In other words, you don't do anything and you just wait. This is the most difficult part of the test. You have to wait. A lot of people are not patient. They, uh, they are, they're afraid to, to wait. And, but uh, 
usually takes you about three years. Why three years? Because first, you're going to have your mite populations build up. Second year, you're going to start to have impact on those uh, uh, mites on those colonies, and you're going to start having colonies that are die out. And uh, about that time, you'll have the colonies that are surviving will be producing drones, so that in the third year, you have a lot more drone production uh, of drones that uh, probably, I say probably show resistance to mites. Then it's a matter of just going through, and uh, I think any beekeeper can tell you what is his best colony. He can also probably tell you what is also his worst colony. Uh, so if you go through and uh, rear queens from your best colonies, and then you just requeen your those colonies with your worst co- uh, worst colonies with uh, virgins from those queens and let them open mate and continue like that. It's it's uh, what I call a no no brainer. But uh, the problem is you have to be patient, and uh, a lot of beekeepers aren't uh, patient. I remember reading an article recently from uh, Danny Weaver. I worked down at Weaver's. Uh, Apries down in Navasota, Texas. That's, that's actually where I learned how to rear queens. And they said uh, they were running about 3,000 colonies at that time. And so they decided not to treat uh, 1,000 of those 3,000. And all the colonies of uh, those 1,000 died except for nine. Now that's uh, oh, wow. having a big economic impact. That's <laughs> a good bond test. And then yeah. they just bred from those. And now they're running uh, 3,000 colonies that they don't treat. That's amazing. Yeah, the problem is to look, locate your genetic material and incorporate it into your uh, bees. When you're talking about genetic material, how important is the the bee type that you're choosing to uh, that success? Do you think like specific, like are Italians particularly good or bad for this? Or is it completely based on place and ideally getting local bees that maybe are... Uh, uh, the best thing is to choose a bee that you like to work with. Doesn't make what difference what the race it is. Or we had uh, we tested our bees and uh, at the uh, at Inji and uh, ex Yugoslavia uh, there on the island there, and uh, they had different uh, lines of bees there. that buckfast, carnicas, and that. And some of the lines showed uh, quite good uh, resistance. Turns out our bees were the final survivors of that experiment. Uh, awesome, but uh, you can find uh, good. Uh, genetics and different bee races and things like that. You just have to learn. And I think it's often good to work with a locally adapted bee because it's uh, if you have dry desert conditions, then you should work with a bee that's uh, uh, adjusted to those conditions. If you're working more with a bee where in a uh, humid area, such as in Germany or things like that, maybe it's better to work uh, a locally adapted Carnica bee. But uh, in all these different uh, races of bees, you can select. The only thing you have to do is sit down and look. And a lot of people say, I don't have the time. <laughs> but they yeah. need to take the time. Yeah. I'm really interested. You pointed out this study or this bond test basically in Texas mm-hmm. where they had, what, 90, 90-something percent die-off versus what you had, which well, is be, about... It'd be uh, more than 90% because... Yeah, uh, like 95, ni- somewhere... Uh, nine colonies uh, surviving out of a 1,000. So 1% survived, right? Or yeah, just less than, yeah. Versus what you had that about seven sound about 70% died. Do you think because of the fact that we're kind of kicking the can down the road with all these new chemical introductions because things aren't working anymore, we're going to make that 
loss bigger and bigger because the Varroa mites are just becoming stronger and stronger? Or is that yeah, just well, a like, worst case we scenario? Did, we did some uh, research work. It's been uh, published and showing you can read uh, mites for a higher, uh, high resistance to low resistance to the chemicals. So it's in, in you know, the genetics of the mites also. And so when you're, when you're treating with chemicals, you're actually breeding mites for resistance to those chemicals. If you're not treating uh, your mites, uh, there's no uh, selection uh, chemi- uh, uh, selection for against the, the chemicals. And so actually the situation is more complicated than what most people uh, realize, but uh, you have to think of the B side, you need to think of the mite side. And, and so, uh, like I say, it's, it's more complicated. Uh, now, one of the things that we've done is we came out, maybe you know about the soft bomb test. I don't know if you heard about that or not. Yes. Essentially, what you do is uh, do a bond test, choose your best uh, colonies, and then uh, so that show the highest uh, uh, honey production and mite resistance. And then you treat everything else. That way you have even less uh, damage than... Uh, if you would treat everything with chemicals, because you're going to have chemical damage, uh, uh, we'd have chemical damage on your breeder queens. But uh, and that way, you can limit uh, your losses, and it takes longer time to do it. But uh, for those that are hooked in on chemicals and psychologically, for them, this is probably the best way for them to to go. And that probably makes more sense for like a backyard beekeeper too, right? Because you're going to have smaller losses. Uh, Makes more sense and maybe more dollars. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. Now, of course, now, why when I have people visit me, I pay them always one cent for every mite they, they find in my colonies there. And so uh, I have a pile of a 50 cent, uh, 50 penny uh, bundles where when people come and they find a mite, then I'll pay them, always pay them cash, hard, hard cash. And you can do it. Tell it's hard because you bite it, bite it with your teeth. You're going to break your teeth. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I, it's so cool to see that there's so many different ways that we can tackle this issue. I'd listen to someone talk about this idea of like pulling the drones out of your hive or the drone cells out of your hive because uh, the mites would come in from the the furthest out comb as a way to basically try to reduce the population. But it doesn't really address that fundamental issue of like building that resistance. And uh, I think what you're doing actually does. And what I also really appreciate about like the bond testing or soft bond is that the idea isn't like some delusional idea that somehow we're going to get rid of all of the mites. Like the mites are there. They're here to stay. We need to just help our bees learn to co-evolve with them. And not doing that. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this book. It was came out probably five years ago called The Comfort Crisis. And it was basically about how humans have become too comfortable and our our bodies are not designed to be comfortable all the time. Mm. And that's causing health problems. And I feel like we've done that to our livestock, whether it's bees or sheep or cattle or whatever. And we're starting to see a lot of pushback with these natural methods, but people don't, I think, fully grasp that sometimes. So like, I'm thinking about my own local beekeeping association and like, I, I can't talk about being a natural beekeeper because the venom that comes out from people saying like, you're, you're causing all these problems. You're the reason that like, we have all these mites when it's like, oh, this is a bigger issue than, you know, having a chemical regimen. Mm -hmm. Um, So 
like with that in mind, how's the feedback been from your local beekeeping community? Maybe even when you started versus today. Well, when I uh, when I started, uh, I actually was short of mites, and so I put advertisements in the bee journals to buy mites. And uh, about fifteen years later, I was talking with the uh, Fernandez from the health uh, bee health uh, service, and uh, I I told him I said that. Uh, I put out all two years of advertisements in the two different bee journals and nobody had any mites for sale. I thought it would be quite easy. I, I was wishing to buy mites in groups of 100. Uh, mites are easy to ship. Uh, you can send them on a, uh, a little bit of a uh, uh, solution in that and uh, so they can have some humidity and they're not difficult to uh, ship and all that. And so I thought, good, I could... Uh, get all the mites I need, but uh, nobody had any mites for sale. Only two people answered me. One said that, sorry, John, but I just treated all my colonies. And the second one said that uh, you can come here and collect all the mites that you wish. But for me, that would be, be too expensive. But my idea was just to, since everyone had all these mites, they could just uh, uh, shake off a few mites for me and uh, send them to me and I'd pay them for them. But uh, uh, later on, uh, like I said, about 15 years later, uh, uh, after those advertisements, I was talking with the uh, person in charge of the health. He said, uh, when you put in your advertisements, we got a lot of people asking us what he, what he, what Kephas was trying to do. Because when somebody's <laughs> an American in France buying mites, uh, well, you know, that raises up suspicions, you know. <laughs> and so uh, That's but, awesome. uh, I, I found out about that uh, later on. But uh, and like I say, the, the people that are treating are actually helping to build up your mite populations because they're making uh, mites uh, more resist, more resistance. And, but I don't worry about uh, people uh, treating because they're furnishing me uh, mites. And so yeah. if my colonies kill those mites, whether those mites are chemically resistant or not, not that makes no difference to me. The main thing is that my bees can eliminate those mites. How they do it, that's something else. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to the Poor Pearls Almanac. We've been exploring new areas of content, including new podcasts such as Tomorrow Today and the Gastropocene with yours truly, but also building a network with folks like Death and Friends. We're also building gardening resources and have a bunch of other content coming in the future. If you'd like to get more information or to sign up for our newsletter where we announce new projects, head over to poorproles.com and click on the Our Email List tab. The email list is only used for important newsworthy content, and we won't clog your inbox, and you'll get less than six emails a year. That's poorproles.com at the Our Email List tab. Yeah, I heard you define uh, your your bees as uh, the black hole. and I really like that. It was a, a good description. Oh, yeah, the thing is that the mites go in, but they don't come out, but you don't know why they come out. Well, actually, you're starting to get a little bit of an idea of uh, why they don't come. In one of the cases, uh, uh, mites need a, a certain chemical called ecdysone, and uh, our, apparently our bees do not produce that specific type of ecdysone that the mites need, and so they can't survive uh, or don't survive so well. It's just like you have an old car. And if you don't put gas in the car, you're not going to go anyplace. Uh, actually, uh, genetic work is just, I'll go to the old, old car analogy. Uh, I have a uh, 
Toyota uh, truck from 1980, 1980 works quite well, keep in good condition. If you if the tires are fat, you're not going to advance. If the pistons are broken, uh, you're not going to advance so fast. I know because that uh, six pistons in one year, I broke one of the six, six pistons, and it was still going around, but it was smoking too much, and I decided to redo the motor. And so, uh, anything that can cause a breakdown uh, for the mite, whether it's in its uh, getting the type of food it needs, or the different conditions, or anything that, uh, or all these things add up and help uh, reduce uh, mite populations and. What might uh, be causing resistance in my counties may not be the same thing that causes uh, resistance in other counties. And I think this is good because uh, it gives you a large variety of things to uh, select from. And you're not, uh, mites are always going to be like a hula dancer where they want to always uh, try to adapt to your bees, but uh, you need to find things that uh, uh, are different so they can't, they can't adapt. and. Uh, uh, the more things you have, the better. And, uh, and I say that where people could real, really make progress, especially in the beekeeping associations, is that every beekeeper, whether it has one or a hundred or a thousand colonies, uh, choose out his uh, best colonies. Well, if you have only one, then it's easy to choose your best colony. And uh, you group those uh, together in a county or group daughters together from those colonies uh, in an area. and then see which ones have the best um, resistance. That way you're spreading your testing out, selecting out of a very, a very large, uh, large area. And it's much more durable uh, selection. It's a, uh, it's not that difficult to do. This is, would be a good organizational you know, project for beekeeping associations is to have a Varroa, a Varroa selection bee yard where people bring in their best, what they think is a, good genetic material and they put it to the test and see what happens. <laughs> I like that. If they, if they see that the colonies are going to die out, then they can pull them out from the experiment and uh, requeen them or treat them or do whatever they wish, but at least to, to test them and have a, um, a zone where they, they, when they know they're going to go in there, they're going to be hit with raw. And so then they can test it and, uh, could be the beekeeper that only has one colony of bees that uh, has the most mite resistant uh, colonies. And it's not do, uh, according to the size of the beekeeper that's important, but it's according to uh, how they've handled their bees and how their bees have been exposed to the mites and things like that. Yeah. I'd say, like I say, it's a, it's a process that takes uh, time and you have to take time to do things correctly. If you try to go too fast, then you're going to in the long run, lose time. Do you have, uh, well, actually, before I get there, I want to ask, do you feel like you're starting to see more uh, treatment-free beekeepers around you because of your example? Oh, yes. I've, uh, I just had a group uh, come in from the Czech uh, Republic. Uh, they heard me talk in the Czech Republic in 2011. And after that, then they start to uh, select, and they've got some of their lines of bees that are starting to show uh, resistance and so actually, they came uh, came here in uh, August to learn a little bit more on how I test, and so I profited to uh, test about uh, ninety colonies of bees, and I had them go in and took out, showed them how to do the sampling and do the testing and that, and uh, 
it's not uh, not difficult to do and uh, and now they know how to do it and they see that uh, there are results now they've been asked by others as, as i understand to demonstrate to some of the other beekeepers the techniques they learned uh, at my place and uh, that way uh, others can select and uh, the more people you get in selecting the better and i think the final point is to be is to it was going to be the deciding is to show the economics. If you got bees that don't need to be treated, you're going to have a economically more viable economic situation than colonies that need to be treated. Because if you treat only once a year, during that during that year interval, you're going to have your mite populations build up and uh, negatively affect those colonies. And whether you see it or not, uh, you're going to have lower production. Yeah. And so if those uh, Colonies don't need to be treated, then you're not going to have that unseen, let's say, mite damage uh, during the buildup uh, phase. And so I think it's just a matter of time. Uh, I said at one time, uh, it take about 30 years before people actually actively start uh, treating for mites. I think that was about, uh, I figure it was about 20 years or so ago. But uh, so things are progressing at the rate that I predicted. and. And as we see more people having bees that they don't need to treat, then it's it's going to go through naturally. One thing I know about beekeepers is beekeepers don't like to waste money. <laughs> they don't they don't have money to waste. Yeah. And like I say, I, I know how that is. And uh, and so anything you can do to help help the beekeepers uh, save money, then it's good. Now, one person that's starting to have probably a little bit of impact in the states now is Randy Oliver, Oliver from California. Probably familiar with him. He actually uh, visited us and uh, uh, saw what we were doing. He came to the France to give a talk to the French Queen Breeders Association. The, and so then I drove him uh, uh, down from the meeting and then drove him to Montpellier and then down to my place. And then uh, so we had plenty of time to talk and. Uh, at the beginning, he wasn't uh, too hot on uh, selecting for mite uh, resistance, but uh, now I think he's um, being he's starting to convert. <laughs> so, of course, these are the type of people you wish to have uh, out there because Randy does a lot of good uh, writing, does a lot, backs up his uh, comments with data, which is what I like to do. I, I would say, I, uh, you can't see it, but... Uh, when I make a comment, I, I like to have the data to back it up. If I don't have the data, then I, I don't make the comment because uh, my mother said if you assume something, uh, you have to be careful because she said the word assume can be divided into three different words. Yep. One of three <laughs> letters, one of one letter, and one of two letters. Now, this is from my mother. So if you divide up. <laughs> yeah, um, I got that a lot too. Right, too awesome. <laughs> so, what do you got? What are you seeing right now for um, survival rates on your hives, like overwintering? We're running about the same survival rates as other beekeepers, and good years we'll have uh, about the same survival rates. Uh, bad years, so uh, it, it also depends on the colonies and uh, what uh, what we've been. Uh, doing and how much I've been playing with my colonies. If I, uh, if I play around with my two co colonies too much before going into the winter, their survival rates are going to go down. But uh, we're running about the 
used to be uh, really your survival rates for before the mites were there was about five percent or so. That was about like in the states. Uh, on uh, now their uh, survival rates are going down uh, to five uh, percent. Uh, that's not five percent survival, but five percent mortality. That's a little difference. So now mortality rates going about twenty percent, sometimes thirty or forty percent. But uh, here in France, you have to uh, think about one thing. We have other, another problem, which is probably getting to be even more important than the varroa mites, and that's the uh, uh, hornets. Uh, and I was out today uh, uh, looking at one of my son's hives at the honey house there, and. Uh, they had a colony of bees there and about 50 or 60 hornets there that are attacking that colony all the time now. Bees are all defending at the entrance, but those hornets will fly in and pick off a bee and fly off. When you have 50 or 60 hornets uh, in front of a colony, that colony's not going to be lasting very long. I put up some boards and things in front of that to uh, block off the hornets and then made a hornet trap uh, with a, it's just a simple plastic bucket with a wire screen over the top. You press the wire screen down and put a hole in the middle about the size of a hornet. And then on the inside of that can, you put uh, honey cappings and things like that. And I push in a few hornets to make a little bit of buzz activity there. And uh, some days in other years, I've got about 500 hornets a day. Oh, wow. Uh, and so when you have that type of pressure on your colonies, that's not good, especially since uh, they're killing off the varroa mites also. They're probably eating those mites as they, I think they eat mainly the thoraxes and things like that. But uh, and so it's, uh, uh, varroa mites are, are a problem, but it's now here in France, it's not the uh, uh, main problem. The main problem now is the uh, uh, hornets. Are those hornets uh, an invasive species or are they just opportunists right now? These are uh, hornets that came in from uh, from Asia, and uh, uh, at the time, it came in from pottery from China. And at the time, uh, when they came in, the French government said they didn't have the money to uh, kill off those hornets. And so those hornets then spread from a region around Bordeaux, then all out over France and different places. And now they're costing probably millions of dollars to beekeepers plus the treatments. When they could have, if it was confined, uh, they uh, could have been stopped, but the politicians say we don't have the money. <laughs> we don't have the money, but you're going to have problems later on. Same thing on the giant hornet that came into the States. Uh, I hope that the States are doing a uh, job of uh, trying to knock that out because it's otherwise it's I haven't heard much about it, so I'm hoping that means that it's been under control, but yeah. uh, it could just be under the radar. Yeah, what I, what I always uh, suggest is that on Hornets like that, they should put a bounty on the hornets. Uh, actually, I had a friend of mine from Syria that they said in Syria, uh, they put a bounty on hornets when you bring in a, uh, a hornet queen and you get so much money. And then uh, the hornet population drops, and so they stopped giving out the uh, premiums. And then after that, the hornet population increased again. If you, if you have hundreds of people that can go out and bring in criminals, get paid for them. Why not pay people to bring in uh, hornets or, or not even to bring in the hornets, just localize the nest and say there's a nest there and then it can be treated and taken care of. That's the cheapest way in uh, the long run. So yeah. people that there's a financial interest in uh, locating those nests and 
that's even a more, more important financial interest for the beekeepers that those uh, nests are located. Yeah. But uh, there's going to probably be other problems come in and also, but in beekeeping, the main thing you have to do is to be able to adapt. If you can't adapt, then you're going to run into problems. Yeah. Now, there's one fundamental issue or situation that's different between uh, where you are in France and here in the United States. And I think that's around the the fact that honeybees are not native to North America, mm -hmm. uh, or at least not in the last 10,000 years. I think they were there before that. but uh... <laughs> Yeah, before the Ice Age, I believe they found um, some evidence of yeah. Apis mellifera out in Nevada. But it's not very closely related to any of the honeybees that exist today. But this raises a really interesting point that we are struggling here in the U.S. is that we have these massive, you know, apiaries that go into like almond fields. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of debate about whether or not honeybees are damaging native pollinators. And uh, I'm, I'm really interested in your thoughts as somebody who's been around this industry for as long as you have about whether or not beekeeping needs to change to support some of these native pollinators or if maybe the issue is overblown. I'm really interested to know kind of your thoughts on you know, whether or not we should be doing something different. Okay. Um, I had the chance uh, when I worked for the USDA, I worked out in Logan, Utah, at the Wild Bee Lab, Bohart. And uh, we, uh, we were working with Osmia and Megacali and all that. I was working with honeybees, but everyone else was working with wild bees. And I think what needs to be done is that uh, areas need to be planted also for wild bees so that they can, one, this is one of the problems for wild bees also is they need certain uh, pollen and nectar resources. And if they don't have those at the correct time of the year, then they run into a problem. I, I've really never been too much worried about competition between wild bees and uh, honeybees. Uh, there might be some competition, but I think if there's enough uh, diverse types of forage, which will uh, then uh, then that will uh, make a uh, better impact for the wild bees, and it will be also better for the farmers. Yes, so farmers consider both wild bees and uh, honeybees. I think both are complementary. And uh, uh, I think Nevada now has become uh, has been officialized as a, a wild bee city or something like that. Uh, there was a project there to uh, get it uh, recognized. Um, so, and so I think that went through there. And the uh, and so, like I say, there's uh, there's room for, I think, room for everyone there. And uh, it's a matter that each uh, type of insect has uh, enough uh, resources to eat. And uh, a lot of people say, well, they, they're doing, they don't have that, they don't have that, et cetera. Well, Instead of saying that, then I said, do something about it and uh, finish, uh, incite people to have gardens or things where wild bees can get their pollen or resources that they need. And yeah. uh, you can find, find wild bees everywhere. And, and so, like I say, it's just a matter of making certain that everyone has enough, uh, enough to eat. Uh, so the issue is less that it's about the honeybees being there and more of an issue of the need for us to consider more diversity in our in our landscapes and more native plants. Exactly. Are, yeah. Exactly. It has awesome. to be uh, more uh, genetic uh, diversity, more plant diversity. 
one thing people can do is uh, stop mowing their lawns and put in uh, native plants for the wild bees. Yeah, yeah. I, I always like to look at the bees flying on the flowers, and so uh, yeah. the uh, it's so it's a good way way to do it and yeah. save on water also, etc. Here in France right now, we got some have water shortage, and I'll try some of this year. And so, like I said, there's you can adapt, uh, you adapt your things. And when you have people preaching on either side for the bees or against the bees, you have to realize that often they're forgetting that it's an in-between area that uh, is actually more important than the than extremes. And so. Now, are you concerned at all about the um, issue of like disease being transferred from honeybees to native pollinators? Or do you think natural beekeeping, treatment-free beekeeping would uh, address a lot of those issues? I think uh, treatment-free beekeeping will address a lot of uh, issues. In fact, anything that's not resistant to will die out. If it dies out, then it's not going to be a source for, for disease. No. And, uh, the, uh, uh, and like I say, it's a uh, matter of... Uh, there are probably some diseases. I, I I I know there are some that can be transmitted between bees and wild bees, but uh, uh, I think if your honeybees are uh, selected against those uh, diseases, then there can be less of a transmission. And of course, you can maybe say the reverse comes also. Maybe there are diseases that can be go from the wild bees to the honeybees. I haven't seen any scientific uh, publications that back that point up. But you have to consider it. Uh, you have things coming in sometimes from uh, both directions, and it's a uh, like I say, if you just let the bees, uh, you select your bees for honey production, um, and take the the ones that show the best uh, disease resistance, and going to make a large impact uh, all around. Uh, it's going to take some time, but in the long run, it's going to be cheap. Yeah, just like uh, we used to talk about, what was that uh, parasite that used to be on bees? Uh, oh, I forget it so long, but there used to be a parasite that you find on bees, and now you don't find it anymore. Of course, probably due to the fact that all the chemical treatments that killed them off. But uh, the um, uh, your colonies will just have to let your colonies adapt and. One thing you have to do is have an open mind. You have to realize that you don't always know all the answers. And uh, sometimes you have to just sit back and say, good, uh, let's stop and watch for a while and see what happens and then uh, go from there. Uh, yeah, I think for a lot of people, the idea of not being in control is really hard to do. Right. Because that's how we're we're trained, whether it's as a beekeeper or any type of livestock, your job is to help your animals, but also you are in control of the situation, but that's not always what the bees need. Right. Um, I saw the old cartoon from uh, the Middle Ages where Bear was helping its uh, owner uh, by hitting a fly with a rock on his head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, about that, same, that's about accurate. Same uh, situation there on the... Uh, yeah. Like I say, it's a uh, some things you. I remember uh, one rich research, researcher uh, 
uh, Jesse Wojcicki uh, uh, told me that uh, when he runs an experiment, he uh, runs the experiment, and once he has the result, then he designs the next experiment. Now, a lot of researchers design an experiment, and they design the next experiment, the next experiment, even before they have the results of the first experiment. And the problem is that you can get a, a bias that way. And, and like I say, uh, I think Borky's technique is good. Get the results, and once you have the results, then go from there. Don't try to program it all in advance as though you know what's the best thing to do because sometimes uh, you don't know what the best thing to do is. And uh, and that's okay. And I think that's where people struggle. Yeah. John, for folks that want to see more, hear more, um, or read anything, do you have any social media, a website, papers, anything you could, you'd want to point people to? Well, I don't have any social websites or anything like that. Uh, if they re- wish to uh, read my publications, just type my name on uh, the internet and then you'll see publications that I've uh, been associated with or done. And uh, uh, there's one that's uh, important for me, an important pub- uh, publication that uh, we published in the Journal of Agricultural Research and um, about 2015, and it's free of charge to everyone. Uh, as I paid out about $2,000 from my own pocket to uh, make sure that everyone could have that free of charge. It was uh, the results of our bond test uh, program uh, over the over the years. And there they'll see the hard data uh, that uh, we have that backs up uh, why this uh, bond test uh, is functional. and. Uh, and they can see uh, why it's also important to uh, write down information and take uh, data. Because sometimes it takes time to collect uh, data, but uh, that's how it is. Yeah, well, the work you've done will uh, be felt for generations, I think. Uh, and that's... Well, I hope more than generations, <laughs> but good, that's my own. Yeah. Uh, John, thanks so much. This has been fantastic. Okay, you're welcome. Welcome.